0: Well, good morning, New City. Glad to be with you guys this morning, and for those of you that are anti-Christmas before Thanksgiving, I'm excited for you to experience joy on Friday morning. Uh, As I begin this morning, there's a show on Netflix called Manifest. Some of you might be familiar with it. I think the latest season actually just came out. And it's a show where basically this airplane hits some turbulence, some normal turbulence, and then they land, and they don't think much of it. However, that turbulence caused them to go missing for five years. And the people on the airplane didn't age at all. And so they land and everyone else is freaking out because this plane that disappeared five years ago has now landed in New York City. So it's all about the 828ers, as they were called, and all these things that are happening. And the show really centers around a specific family where there's a brother and a sister, they're, they're, they're adults. And the brother, uh, when they land, uh, the brother's wife is now dating somebody else who's been five years. Uh, the brother and his wife had twins together. And so the daughter who wasn't on the airplane aged five years, but the son who was on the airplane didn't. Um, he had cancer, but because the five years that had passed, when they landed, his cancer was actually able to be cured. Uh, the sister had a fiancé that she had, wasn't sure if she wanted to marry, but she decided before getting on the airplane that she was going to say yes when she landed. However, it had been five years, and so when she landed, he had now married her best friend. And so there's a lot of difficult things that had gone on. And, and one of the things about this show is that it's all centered around, at least the first few seasons, Romans um, 8.28. Uh, and, and in show, the show, the, the mom of the brother and the sister who had passed away while the airplane was gone somewhere for five years, like stitched on this like pillow and said all the time that all things work together for good. This part of Romans 828, it's not the entire verse. And so this whole show is just like the people in on the, on the airplane, they get callings. And so they think it's like leading them to do good things. And 828 is everywhere. It was flight 828. There's 828 symbols all over the place and there's this like idea that all these bad things are happening but at the end all things work together for good so they got to keep fighting they got to keep figuring out you know all these crazy things that are going on. All things work together for good. That is like the theme of the show called Manifest. And this week we're continuing our series called Misquoted, we are we are looking at a really well-known passage of scripture uh, that when you take the verse by itself, it might not mean what you think it actually is saying when you read it in context. And and one of the things that we're saying throughout this entire series is that we need to remember, whenever you and I engage the scriptures, is to remember that all scripture, the entire Bible, was written in a specific context, speaking to specific people with specific needs. It's a specific context written to specific people with specific needs. It's it's not necessarily a textbook to go and find answers in, although you can find answers in the Bibles, uh, but it is wisdom rather to learn and to meditate and to apply. And so what we can do uh, mistakenly is that we can view, for example, all the verses as like bullet points that stand on their own, forgetting, again, that the scriptures were written to specific people in a wildly different context than ours. And so what we should do when we engage the scriptures is try to study them and apply them and, and try to say, okay, our context is different. What I'm dealing with is different, but what is the wisdom that I might be, be able to apply from this text as I try to follow Jesus in my life? And so the, today, the, the, the passage that we are looking at is Romans eight twenty-eight. It says this, we know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, whether or not you know the reference to this passage, you, you might have heard this at times. Uh, so oftentimes, this verse gets used if you're going through a hard time. Maybe people with really good intentions might say this to you, and there's, and there's kind of this idea that, hey, when, when things are difficult, when things are hard, man, just push through because God has good things for you. And what's interesting, however, when you read at least the entire verse of Romans 8.28, you already see the manifest example has some problems, right? Because they just say all things work together for good. But this also says for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. And so right then we also have to ask, what does that mean? Whatever these good things are, what does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? I think the real question here when we read Romans 8.28 is this will everything work out for our good, right? The kind, of, the kind of the surface level meaning that people, when people often apply this verse or when they say this verse to other people, is the, the, the assumption is that if you just are faithful enough, even though these bad things are happening for you, it will all work out good for you in the end in a way that you can understand. And if you're still struggling, it's not over yet. And it's also sometimes kind of given like, hey, even though you went through this bad thing, it's actually in the end, you're gonna be glad you went through it. Because good things are going to happen. But is that what this verse is actually saying? Will everything actually work out for our good? Now, to understand what's going on here, you really need to read all of Romans 8. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning, and so what I want to do is I'm just going to summarize the first 17 verses really quick. And the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8, it was written by this man by the name of the Apostle Paul, and it's basically about how followers of Jesus are indwelled by the Spirit in their lives. And as we walk with the Lord, and as we cultivate, as we have rhythms and practices in our lives that remind us of God's goodness, and as we walk with Him, the Spirit will help us experience freedom from sin and walk. In the life that God has for us. And so in Romans 8, Paul is contrasting these selfish pursuits and desires that he calls the flesh. And, and instead, he's contrasting them with pursuing the God-honoring and life-giving pursuits that God wants for us instead, that as we pursue the Lord, there is freedom for us. And then he says this in Romans chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 18. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can take one of those black ones out. We'll be in page 1003. Uh, continuing in this thought, he then says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In other words, even in the sufferings that you and I experience in this life, and just so we're all on the same page, Paul is not in some like ivory tower looking down and being like, well, just have more faith. He had suffered a lot, And if you are familiar with Paul's story, his suffering happened after he started following Jesus. He's been beaten to death, shipwrecked, uh, jailed multiple times, starved. I mean, he's experienced a lot of difficult things. And so he's not saying that your sufferings do not matter. And he's not even saying that you should be glad that you're suffering. What well, instead, he, what he's trying to point out here is that nothing, even in our suffering, sometimes very intense sufferings, they will be nothing compared to the joy and the happiness and the love and the glory that you you and I will one day experience in God's kingdom. It's not that your sufferings don't matter. It's not that you shouldn't be, you know, wounded by the fact. It's just that when you compare what will be for us, when we enter into God's kingdom, we will look back at our sufferings and be like, man, that was nothing compared to the goodness that God has for me. It's kind of like, maybe make a practical example. Like imagine, I think it's still going on, the Powerball, whatever. It's like a billion something dollars. Like imagine you buy a ticket and you win. Like you somehow win this billion dollars and you're super excited. And so like they announce it, let's say like 10 o'clock at night, it's raining, it's cold. And so in your excitement, you jump into your car, you don't put on a jacket, uh, you don't grab your phone and it's, you got to redeem your ticket. It's like a five mile drive. And so you're like two miles into this thing, super excited, thinking of all the things you're going to buy, thinking about the 10% you're going to tie to New City Church. And you're just like, this is going to be great. And, uh, and all of a sudden, that check engine light that you never got fixed, that you're thinking, I'm going to, I don't even need to fix it, I'm going to buy a new car. Well, your car breaks down and you're three miles away and it's cold and it's rainy and it's on a runway, one-way road where no one else is driving and you don't have a phone and you don't have a jacket and you've got to walk three miles. Typically, you would be very upset to be in that predicament. But because of what is awaiting you when you turn in that ticket, that is going to be the best three-mile walk in your life. Right? And it's not, again, it's not that it doesn't stink, that you're going to be cold, your car broke down, but because of what the comparison to what you're going to get, you are going to say, hey, even though that stinks and I wouldn't want to do it again, it is worth it or it is not comparable to the amazing happiness that I'm going to have for New City Church when I do a bunch of stuff for them. Right? Why? You knew what was coming to you was greater than the difficulties you were experiencing right now. And so you could have hope, even joy, in the midst of your difficult circumstances. That's what Paul is saying here. Not that your sufferings don't matter, but when we compare them to what awaits us, they are going to be nothing in comparison. And then he says this, continuing on in verse 19. He says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So, again, this theme of suffering, Paul is continuing and he's personifying creation here. That just like us, a creation, just like us, we are all desiring something greater and better and more complete than we are experiencing now, right? Particularly the older you get, the more life experience you have, the more your body breaks down, like you are wanting something better. Right? And that as believers, what he is saying is that we have the Spirit of God that is available to us. And though even though we have that, even though we can walk with the Lord in this life, we still long for the day where we will experience the full redemption, where there is no more pain, where there is no more suffering, where everything is, seems to make sense. And so although if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I have already been adopted into God's family through Christ in the legal sense, like we're, we are his children, we are not going to see the full redemption or the full uh, totality. We're not going to walk into all the things that God has us in until we experience his kingdom, right? And so the wonder of the future glory that God's children, and what Paul's talking about here, God's children means believers, that even though Adam and Eve has sinned, that creation now is not what it could have been. Uh, It's broken. In Genesis 3, it talks about thorns and thistles that are in our life that makes work hard for us, that even creation, just like us, is groaning for the ability to be perfected and without strain, which will happen when Jesus returns, when Jesus makes everything new, that even creation is longing for that day. And so we'll read 22 again and continue. It says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves also have the spirit as the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our body. Again, creation is personified as wanting something complete that it's missing out on. You and I are wanting that now in our own sufferings, and our own hardships, and our own body breaking down. There's something greater that we want, that although we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, we aren't experiencing all that God has for us yet until we enter into his kingdom. And so when you read the context of Romans chapter 8, as we're trying to understand what Paul is talking about in verse 28, uh, here's what we see happening that our hope is grounded in a future reality, not our present condition. So what Paul is setting us up for is this, that our hope that you and I want, that you and I are longing for, is a future reality that is not currently being experienced in our current lives. Now, so to be clear, and this is why context is important, right? The future that Paul is speaking about here is not a future five minutes from now or five months from now or even five years from now. The future that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 is in God's kingdom after Christ has returned and renewed all things. That's the context for Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 verse 28. This is why context matters. Because again, if you view the Bible as a textbook, as each verse as its individual own bullet point, then you can easily miss what is actually going on here. Now, hear me. There are certainly principles and promises in scripture about our current physical conditions. There's a lot of them. But Romans chapter 8 is not one of them. He is not talking about things that you and I are going to experience in this life. Paul is clearly talking about a future reality that none of us have experienced until Christ will return. And then we continue by reading this in verse 24. He says, now in this hope, this future reality that followers of Jesus will one day experience. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience, right? And so we hope and trust that God's promises given through Christ are true, that he will one day make all things right. And so we long for that day with patience. We haven't seen it. We have not fully experienced it, but we long for it. And then verse 26, uh, in the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness, Because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, although we do not always know God's will, God's spirit himself intercedes for us in our prayers. Now, we're not preaching through the book of Romans, so there's a lot more that could be said here. I'm going to just mention something. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Great, just ignore what I'm going to say the next minute. But because it's here, I just want to mention it. If you're familiar, sometimes people use this passage thinking Paul's saying that all believers are going to speak in tongues, that what's happening here is that believers, we don't know what to pray, and so tongues are for us, you know, for God, for the Spirit to intercede on our behalf. Uh, While that can be true, that's not what Paul is saying here, because in other writings of Paul, like in Corinthians, he says that not all believers will speak in tongues. What Paul is talking about here are the times and the moments that you and I have all experienced when we do not know what to pray. And yet the spirit still intercedes for us. The spirit does this for all believers, whether or not a, a somewhat follower of Jesus speaks in tongues or not. And so, and here, you speak right, have you ever been in a time where you, maybe you're praying for someone repeatedly or something that you want repeatedly and it's not happening and it is a good thing. And so you're discouraged about it. You have questions about it. And you're just like, Lord, I don't know what to do. What Paul is saying here is that the Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, is interceding for you, is advocating for you, even when those times that you do not know what to say. And so, all that to say, again, if we're trying to apply the wisdom of what Paul is showing us in Romans 8, if I were to sum it up like super simple, here's what I think Paul is saying so far before we read verse 28 again. And that is that life is hard, but God is faithful. Life is hard but God is faithful. You will suffer, things will not go your way, you'll have questions, you'll have doubts, But here's the good news, that God gives us his spirit to guide us, to intercede for us, to advocate for us, to walk alongside us, that even in our struggles, if we seek him, we can experience him. This is not like a magic bullet or a one-time prayer, like spirit guide me, and then like we just do whatever we want. That's not what Paul is saying here. Particularly in the first part of Romans chapter 8, he's encouraging us to have disciplines in our life, to encourage us to walk with the Lord so that we can experience him that we should have rhythms and practices like this, like joining together corporately, weekly, to encourage one another of of God's goodness so that we can experience God's presence in our life, that the Spirit will guide us, that He is faithful towards us, that He loves us, that He has adopted us even when things are difficult, that life is really hard, but God is really faithful. And we know that because He then says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In the context of that, He says this, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So again, the context of what's happening and in the verse itself, for the first thing we see here is the good that God has promised is for who? For those who love God. It is not something that's uh, this general principle for all people that the Spirit intercedes only for God's children. Now, to be clear here, when Paul talks about loving God, this isn't like maybe our modern sense of like whatever spiritual but not religious, you know, whatever you want to believe in follow. in. for Paul, loving God, he's very clear in all of his letters, it's following Jesus. It's pursuing Jesus. It's not this idea of God in general, but it's for followers of Jesus. And what he is saying is that the Spirit convicts and draws people to God. Uh, certainly, if you're not yet a follower. of Jesus, you might be here, you might be watching online, and you might feel the Spirit drawing you to experience the grace and mercy of God. But for those that are actually followers of Jesus, he's interceding and he's advocating, but it is only for those who have responded to the gospel. And so whatever blessings Paul is talking about here, you first must be his adopted child. Or put another way, here's one of the things that Romans 8.28 is showing us, that it is not a blanket statement for all people. Romans 828 is not a blanket statement for all people. And so already the show manifests that I talked about in the beginning, it's out. The show manifests like, oh, there's bad things happening. We're not sure. Just keep holding on because all the good. That is not what Paul is saying here. The good that Paul is talking about, the wisdom that we can receive and, and apply to our lives from the scripture is that you must know, love, and follow God. It is not a blanket statement that everything is going to work out for you and for me the way that we want it to work out. It is for those who are followers of Jesus. It is not a blanket statement for all people. Second thing we see is that Romans 8.28 does not mean things taken by themselves are good. It does not mean things taken by themselves are good. And this is where you have two problems with this verse. One is assuming that everything's going to work out for good, right? Like the manifest example. The other pitfall we come into this text is kind of maybe when we're trying to encourage people in this idea of like, well, it's actually, you should be glad that that happened to you because these good things are going to happen because of that bad thing. That's not what this text is saying. Can I, so I just want to tell you, if you've ever heard that, if you've ever wrestled with that, I just want to let you know this morning that some things and some events are decidedly bad. Like they're just bad and there is nothing good about them, right? There's no good reason why you were abused or why you were cheated on or why your mom or your dad walked out on you or why you lost that job or why you had that health diagnosis. There is nothing good about it. And in fact, there are many things in our lives today that we will not see any good come from it in this life. Or there might be times where you see good things come from it, but it does not outweigh the bad or the pain or the trauma you experienced. Like, even if good things come from it, it doesn't, like, if you scale it, the bad would still heavily outweigh the good. Now, this verse in this passage speaks to all things being worked out for good if you are in Christ, but it does not mean that everything happens to you is good. Even if good comes from it, it does not mean that it's a good thing that it happens. So if I you just be, like, let me give you a real personal example uh, this morning from my own life. If you've been in New City Church for any length of time, you know that I was, when I was 19 years old, uh, I lost my dad to a suicide. That was a decidedly bad event in my life. In fact, not having my dad around for a, a lot of significant moments in my life, graduation from college, from seminary, getting married, having kids, planting a church. There are things because my dad is not here that I am objectively weaker in because I don't have a dad. And it, just, I just am. Uh, there are, uh, God has been graciously kind to me and there are many men in my life who have gone above and beyond and have been there for me and I could call anytime I wanted to and they would be happy to give me advice and guidance. But here's the thing. That's a lot different than picking up the phone and calling your dad. Like, there are just times where I'm not gonna ask. I don't wanna inconvenience, even though it's just different. There are things because I haven't had my dad for the last 13 years of my life that I am objectively weaker in. Now, there has been good from it. Uh, I've learned how to walk through tragedy. I have some weight to talk to other people. If you've gone through some hard things, even if it's not the same, like I I know what it's like to to be, you know, life be totally fine and then everything be completely shattered the next. And so, yes, I've learned a lot and I can help a lot and I can help people in their difficult moments, but it is not the same. In fact, if I could be honest with you, every day of my life, I would rather trade the good that has come for it to have my dad back. And so this verse is not saying, well, you better be glad your dad died. This verse is not saying, you better be glad that you lost a child or that your marriage ended or that you lost that job or that you had that health diagnosis or that you were bad. It is not saying you should be glad for that. What it is saying is that this is not the end. What it is saying is that if you're a follower of Christ, it will not be wasted. But it is not saying you should be happy that those bad things happen to you. It is not saying that. But God is able to work them together for good, that God sees the big picture, and that in the end, he can weave it all together in a way that results in our good, but only for those who are called according to his purpose. So even in those difficulties of life, the goodness, you're not actually going to see full goodness from them unless you're in Jesus. Or put another way, that God's good plan will not be experienced by those who do not know him. God's good plan of redemption and love and grace and mercy and an invitation into his kingdom will not be experienced by those who do not know him. Now here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that God made himself known in Jesus. That we're about to enter this Advent season celebrating that God himself has come and a man named Jesus who lived the perfect life you and I could not live, died the death that you and I deserve to die so that anyone who is honest and repents of their sins and trusts in the Lord are invited into his kingdom to experience the goodness that God has promised, but only for those who are in Jesus, that Jesus seeks sinners and he saves sinners so that we can experience his perfect kingdom. But if we do not know Jesus, we won't experience his good. Again, this is not a blanket statement for all people. These are for people who are followers of Jesus, who have laid down their life, who have committed to follow him, to experience the redemption that Jesus offers. God's good plan here will not be experienced by those who do not know him. And then Paul goes on to say this. We'll read two more verses to kind of the end of this section to kind of clarify all that's going on here. He says this in verse 29. Here's how we know that all things will work together for those who love God, for, for good, verse 29. "For those he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, which is Jesus, so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters." And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a lot of fancy words there. Here's what Paul is saying. That those who believe in Christ can be assured that all things will work together for good. Maybe not in this life but in the life to come, because before creation, in the distant past, God chose to redeem people to be rescued by his son, Jesus. And it was not on the basis of your good efforts, of your promising, I'm going to try really hard, of your promising, I'm not going to do these bad things anymore, but on the basis of his love alone, that God chose to redeem and that firstborn, this firstborn imagery that Paul is giving us here, and he's not talking about Jesus was like the first person created. What he's talking about is that in ancient culture, there were certain rights and privileges that a firstborn son got that no one else got. You got double the inheritance. You got to take over the family, you know, when your parents passed away. There were certain things that only the firstborn son received. And what Paul is saying here is that if you are in Christ, you are invited to take part in Christ's inheritance, that Jesus acts on the firstborn on our behalf, and he laid it down for us so that all of us could experience his love and his kingdom. And what's fascinating here is that Paul speaks of these things as if they've already occurred, like they're already completed. And he does that even though we're still longing for that day, even though we have not fully experienced it yet. He does that because God will finish his work, because God's promises are true. Even if we haven't fully experienced those realities yet, It's going to happen, that we can trust in it, that it can be assured. It kind of makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever bought a gift for somebody and you just knew they were going to love it. And so you start saying all these things about it and then they open it and you were like, right. So like I've said this before, Christina for pretty much a whole marriage is like, she doesn't like surprises, which really stinks because surprises are fun. But she also doesn't trust me to buy her anything good. And so she's like, "Here's what I want for Christmas." Now I'm not going to get into it. Now I've shared in the past, like our first or second Christmas together. I tried to like surprise her, and it was a total fail. It was awful. And so ever since then, she's like, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want." Well, last year I was like, "I'm going to get her a Roomba." She didn't ask for it, and so I like did all this research. I got like the, the, the floor mapping one, so you can actually tell it where to go, so it's not just like bumping into everything. And I found like there was this one, a refurbished one on Amazon, and so I got it. And I was super excited about it. She didn't ask for it, and the whole time I'm like, "You're going to love it. It's going to be great." She's like. You have never bought me anything that I liked that I didn't tell you.